Hello, young adults, how we doing? Yeah. Don't be jealous. A few days ago, I was in Harry Potter world. Everything I imagined it would be and more. Honestly, like the real world did not exist for the 10 hours that I was there. I was like, this is the real world to me right now. Bought a wand, because you can't go to Harry Potter world and not buy a wand. I wanted to bring it up and hold it for my whole sermon, because I thought that would like, give me more authority. And let's be real, it would give me more authority, but I just forgot to bring it. And that's really what happened. Um, but seriously, wander no wand. Tonight's going to be wonderful. You don't have to clap for that. I don't deserve any applause for that joke. <laughs> but yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I deserve that. But seriously, I, I've been very, very excited for tonight. Um, tonight, we're going to kind of get off the ground level and get up to 35,000 feet and kind of see an overarching view of the Bible and the story that's behind grace is kind of what we're going to do. Because I know the Bible can be a very intimidating thing as a whole. It's like a really big book that even if you read it in a year, like you have to read it every single day to get through it. And it's, let's see, it's 39 different authors, 66 individual books or letters, written over the span of 1,500 years on three different continents. And so there's a lot of elements, but all of those elements add up just to, to, to tell one story, one meta-narrative of the Bible that the more you learn about it, the less intimidating it really does become, and um, the more amazing it becomes too. And when I first got saved back in college, um, people would always tell me like, oh, Jesus died, therefore you're saved, and you're going to heaven. And I was like, cool, like... I believe that, but like, why does Jesus dying on a cross and me believing that mean that I'm forgiven of my sins and that I'm going to heaven? Like, why is that the way God chose to do things? Why not another, maybe easier way? Like, what's kind of the science behind grace? Why does this whole grace thing work? What's the story behind it? And so if you're taking notes tonight, that's what I've titled this message, The Story Behind Grace. So would you bow your heads, let's pray, and then we'll get going. Heavenly Father, God, God, I love you so much. I love this ministry so much. I thank you for Thursday nights, God, from the bottom of my heart. God, it's the, the deepest cry of every heart in this room, whether we know it or not, whether we're always conscious of it or not, to know you more, to see your glory. Father, with you, we can do all things. Without you, God, we got nothing. Without you, we spend our lives searching for fulfillment around every corner and come up empty over and over again. But with you, we, we have contentment no matter what situation we're in. God, truly, all that we need is more of you in our lives. And so tonight, that's what I pray would happen. I pray that you would give us more of you. God, show us more of your glory. Teach us more of your story. And God, thank you for that awesome unplanned rhyme right there. God, that was so good. God, we love you so much. We give you this night, and it's all for your beautiful name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to go to the Old Testament, to the big, bad, scary book of Leviticus. If you've ever read the Bible in a year, Leviticus is about six weeks in. When you get to that book that's so dry and long and you get frustrated and angry and throw your Bible across the room and then quit the Bible in a year thing, that's where we're going tonight, so get pumped. So if you have your Bibles, grab those. If not, I brought my jumbo Bible on the screen so you can just follow along right there. But while you're turning to Leviticus, um, did you guys know that uh, 
In the Old Testament, God went by a different and much more personal name. No way. Yahweh. <laughs> this beautiful Connor right on cue is perfect. All right. <laughs> I apologize for that one too. That, they're almost over. The cheesy jokes are almost over. Any, uh, any Lion King fans in the room? All right, I like it. Lion King came out on June 15, 1994, and movie critics of the time said that Lion King was one of the greatest stories that was ever written, and who would disagree with that? I mean, it's the Lion King, and you got Simba, and Simba's cool right from the start because he's got the voice of that cool kid from Home Improvement, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, and he's in a royal family, and he is kind of a like a little bit of a troublemaker, which is kind of cool, and he just can't wait to be king. And then there's an incident involving a death that causes Simba to run away from his family, run away from his homeland, and spend a solid chunk of his life singing Hakuna Matata <laughs> until Mufasa, who kind of represents God, comes to him in the clouds, talks some sense into him, and tells him to go back to his homeland because his family is being oppressed and he needs to fight for their freedom. And I saw The Lion King a long time ago, like right when it first came out, and then a large span of my life went by when I did not watch The Lion King. And at the end of, those, of that 15 to 17 year span in college, I got saved and I read the Bible. And then after that, I watched Lion King again, and realized something while I was watching The Lion King, I realized that Simba is Moses. He seriously is. Like, Simba's Moses. Moses grew up as the cool guy in a privileged family, heir to royalty, until one day an incident involving a death caused him to run away from his homeland and from his people and spend a solid chunk, like 40 years of his life, singing Hakuna Matata until God comes to him not in the clouds like Mufasa did, but rather in, in a burning bush, which is equally, if not more crazy than the clouds, talks sense into him and tells him to go back to Egypt, to his homeland, to his, not his homeland, but where his people are being oppressed because God says, I'm going to use you to fight for their freedom. And so, and I love that, like a lot of the great themes that we see in books or movies, like those writers pull those themes straight from the Bible. I love that. So if you ever are trying to remember the story of Moses, just think of Simba. And that's the takeaway. Let's pray. I'm kidding. There's more. <laughs> Moses goes back, right? If you've seen the Prince of Egypt, Moses goes back to Egypt where his people are slaves and God goes with him. And like every story in the Bible, God uses a normal human being to do incredible things, all right? He uses people just like you and just like me to do amazing things. And if you remember the story, the plagues happen and the Red Sea parts and Moses leads his people to freedom. God saves them and God uses Moses to lead his people. And what becomes evident over and over again very quickly is that God's people are not very, very good at following God. They have like an inability to follow him well at all because God is perfect and we are not. We were created perfect. Like that was God's original plan. You gotta understand that. Like God's original plan. He authored Eden 
and perfection and harmony between every relationship, between you and yourself and you and God. That was the original plan until Adam and Eve chose their own way over God and sin entered the world and everything was ruined. And since then, there has been this chasm of sin between human beings and God. We, his people, are broken. God is holy and we are not. And that poses an issue. And here's the issue and here's the conflict in the story behind grace. That because of sin, a holy God cannot coexist with human beings. Because of sin, a holy God cannot coexist with human beings. So something needs to happen. Something needs to be done because according to Romans chapter 6, the first part of verse 23, the wages of sin is what? It's death. And God is life. And a holy and perfect God cannot coexist with broken human beings. And sin, essentially, what sin is, is you and I basically elevating ourselves in our lives to a position above God, or choosing our own way over God's way, or bringing something in our lives and treating it as something ultimate above God. And none of us would like say out loud that we do that, or probably even consciously think that we do it. We just show that that that's what we truly believe or live by deep in our hearts by the, by the decisions that we make and the, the um, choices that we make as well. And God cannot simultaneously exist with that sin. That sin needs to be dealt with. Something needs to happen. God just can't see this sin and ignore it and look the other way and pretend like nothing happened. Sin needs to be dealt with in order for you and I to be able to, to spend an eternity with God. So anybody in here, I'll give you an example We'll make this tangible. Anybody in here ever been grounded or punished growing up for doing something that you probably should not have been doing? Like, you do something, like, blatantly, like, I, sh- I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to do it because I want to, and then your parents find out, and they're like, you're grounded, and outwardly you're complained, but inwardly you're like, I probably should be grounded. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and um, I'll give you an example. When I was seven, on my seventh birthday, one of my birthday gifts was this tool set, and it was obviously a mini small tool set because I was seven, but it was real tools. Like the hammer was like this big, but it was real. I could, I could bang holes through the drywall if I wanted to with this hammer. And the saw was like a, like a regular hand saw, maybe 10 inches long, but it was a real saw. And I was seven years old. Keep that in mind for this story, okay? And my parents gave me a saw. And so one afternoon, I was bored. So I picked up my saw And I walked into my neighbor's yard where there was a tree about 25 feet tall. So from the floor probably to the ceiling in this place. And the trunk was about that thick, okay? And I picked up my saw and I started sawing this tree. And two hours of unsupervised fun later... I sawed through the entire thing, and I yelled timber as that tree in my neighbor's yard came crashing down. And, yeah, successfully as a seven-year-old, one of the greatest accomplishments, greatest feelings of accomplishment in my life, and it lasted for about five minutes until I looked down the street and I saw my dad coming home from work, and he was driving his car And I imagine this from my dad's point of view, like he's in his car, just, you know, a great day of work, and he gets onto the street, and he sees me from like a hundred yards off and says, there's my son, (laughs) with whom I am well pleased, (laughs) waiting for his father to come home from work so we can play catch until his mother 
calls him and I in for dinner tonight. And then he gets a little closer, I imagine it, and he, he notices, wait a second, there used to be a tree where he's standing right now. <laughs> then he gets a little bit closer, he sees that tree on the ground and me standing next to it, and then he gets close enough to see me holding a saw in my hand and a holy crap, I'm in trouble, look on my face, and I've seen my dad angry before, but this was like the first moment in my life where I was like, dad, you gonna, are you going to kill me? Please don't kill me right now. Like... And so I try to see this from my dad's point of view, all right? So what do you do if you're my dad and this is you? Like, first of all, like, what did you, what did you expect I was going to do, dad, if you're listening to this podcast right now? You gave me a saw for my seventh birthday. Like, as a dad, if your son did that, like, if it was my son, I'd be like, that's kind of funny. Like, we got to deal with this, but I'm kind of proud. Deep down, this is kind of funny, but I'm going to put on the straight face and deal with this. <laughs> Like, I needed to be punished. I created an issue that my dad needed to deal with. I needed to be punished. There was now a stump in my neighbor's yard that needed to be dug up. The neighbors had no idea, and they needed to be informed before they walked out and saw their tree gone. So I was grounded from my bike for three months. It's harsh. It's harsh, man. Consequences are real. It's grounded from my bike for three months. My dad spent the evening digging up the stump in my neighbor's yard. And uh, I had to knock on the door to my neighbor's house and explain to them what I did, which was so scary and probably so confusing for them. Like, <laughs> what? Dang it. We love that tree. <laughs> so here, here's what I'm getting at. I created an issue. My dad needed to deal with it. In the same way, the sin of humanity is an issue that a holy heavenly father needs to deal with as well. The punishment of sin, according to that Romans 6 verse, is death and eternity separated from a holy God because a holy God cannot exist in the presence of sin. And because God is loving, God is just, he will judge and he has no choice but to do something about the sin, all right? The bulk of humanity, I think, is under the impression that God is going to take all the bad in their life one day and weigh it up against all the good that they've done. And if the, if the scale tilts in the good direction, they get to go to heaven and all the bad kind of goes away. The problem is if that God operated under that way of thinking, that would make God evil. And I'll explain to you what I mean. Like, no judge in our country operates like that. So imagine for a second you've got a guy who, say, kills a bunch of people and he he goes to court and sits down in his chair, and then the judge walks in and sits down in his chair, that judge is not going to say, all right, you killed a bunch of people, but let me weigh that against all the good things that you've done in your life, and I'll see if I'm going to let you off the hook for that or not. And he says, like, oh, man, you've done a lot of good. Like, outside of killing a bunch of people, you're a pretty classy dude. So <laughs> I'm going to ignore this and let, like, no judge would do that, and we as the people would not stand for that for a second that judge would lose his job within hours a good deed does not erase a bad deed those bad deeds sin this problem of sin needs to be dealt with God cannot just simply turn away I heard a pastor say once if you want to know how serious God takes sin you need to look no further than the reality of hell and the brutality of the cross of Jesus Christ God is serious about sin and needs to do something about it. 
because it poses a problem because because of sin, a holy God cannot coexist with human beings. And so what we see, why I had you go to Leviticus, is back in the beginning of the Old Testament, not the very beginning, but Exodus and Leviticus, we see, we see grace played out in a pretty cool way. We see grace in Leviticus played out through the sacrificial system, all right? And we hear the sacrificial system in 2015 and think, oh, it's just like a gruesome, horrible, just awful, oppressive system. And thank God that we don't have to live beneath the sacrificial system anymore. And I heard a uh, a Bible teacher named Chris Ward in Southern California who, who teaches Leviticus just brilliantly. And he said, absolutely, the latter part of that statement is completely true. Like, thank God that we are no longer beneath the weight of the sacrificial system. But you need to know tonight that the sacrificial system was not a bad thing. This, this was good. This was a good system given to God's people by God so that the sin, the thing that separated them from him could be atoned for and dealt with so that they could get what their sins do not deserve but rather unmerited favor, which is called grace. This is, this is God's grace written all over it in the sacrificial system. And essentially what it is is, is nowadays in 2015, post-Jesus, man, we can accept Christ and what he did for us to forgive us and we are we are completely justified in front of God from this point on and those sins are gone but back back in the old testament days in the old covenant days before Jesus man if you did something wrong if you screwed up if you sinned there was a price that you had to pay to deal with that sin and if you flip through Leviticus you'll find a list of pretty much everything that you could possibly do wrong and then the price that you need to pay in order to deal with that sin so that you can move on from it and and usually that price involved taking the life of an animal, which we'll get to in a second. And every single year, there was something called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So if you have any Jewish friends, you've probably heard of Yom Kippur. It's still um, around today, even though it looks vastly different today than it used to back in the Old Testament days. Yom is the Hebrew word for day, and Kippur is the Hebrew word for atonement. Atonement is this weighty, weighty word that essentially involves the word cover, to cover like you'd cover somebody's shift so that you'd absolve them from those responsibilities so they could take the day off, and to ransom, like you, the idea of paying somebody's punishment or somebody's debt for them. And on the Day of Atonement, every single year, they would set it up so that they could basically cover and deal with the sins of the entire nation of Israel for the previous year so that those sins could be dealt with. The nation could be free from that. It could be in the past and done away with so that they could move on. And it was a beautiful thing for the Hebrews. The sin of the Israelites would be atoned for and dealt with on the day of atonement so that they would be clean in front of God. And so starting in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 6, let's read. Aaron and Aaron is Moses' brother, Aaron's the high priest of this time, is to offer a bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and for his household. Then he is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And back in the Old Testament, the tent of meeting is where God, God's presence would reside. And so if the high priest, if Aaron wanted to meet with the presence of God, he would have to sacrifice a bull to make atonement for his sins, to deal with his, with his sins so that he could enter in to the presence of God because a holy God cannot coexist with broken, unholy human beings at this time. So that's the tent of meeting. And Aaron is to cast lots for two goats, 
One lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. You've probably heard that before. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And so these two goats are gonna be used to make atonement for, to deal with all of the sins of this entire nation for the whole previous year. We'll skip to verse 15. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. And so at this point, you might be asking yourself what I asked myself all the time. Like, why does blood need to be shed in order for sin to be atoned for? Like, why is there not another way to go about that? And the answer to that question is found both in Leviticus chapter 17 and Hebrews chapter 9. And if you remember that Romans chapter 6 verse that the punishment for sin is death, then the way to make up for that sin is by taking life, essentially. The way sin is paid for and dealt with and atoned for is through life, which is found in the shedding of the blood because life, according to these two verses we're about to read, is found in the blood. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. I know this sounds crazy, but go with me. For the life of a creature, here it is, of any creature, the life in you and in me is found in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And the writer of Hebrews explains it in pretty much the same way. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, he says, The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, where the life is, there is no forgiveness. And you think, man, but that's so brutal. And once again, if you want to know how serious God is about sin, look no, for, look no farther than the brutality of the sacrificial system and the gruesomeness of the sacrificial system, that the punishment of sin, the wages of sin, is indeed death. And to deal with that sin, to move on from it, to ignore, like, to move on from it and atone for it, the life is in the blood, and blood needs to be Shed. If we keep going in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 20, we read this. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat, goat number two. He is to lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all of their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness, into the care of somebody appointed for the task. The goat will carry away on itself all of their sin to a remote place, and the man shall release it into the wilderness. And, and that same Bible teacher, Chris Ward, he brought up the point that's probably where the guy who wrote, the psalmist who wrote Psalm 103, got the idea that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. The picture of that go in all of the sins of an entire nation being laid on its head as it's led as far as possible away from this nation. So with the first goat, the blood is shed and life is taken. And with the second goat, the iniquities of everybody are confessed 
onto its head. It's taken away from them, removed as far as possible. And with this system, God made a way for his people to not get what they deserved and their sins deserved, which was death, and rather get unmerited favor and get what they did not deserve, which was to deal with the sin in another way, to allow them to once again be in union with him. The system, although bloody and although gruesome and although it seems so ancient and just primitive to us, was such a good and necessary thing for the Israelites. But here's the thing. There's something, and you, you might have picked up on this, that's just not quite satisfying about the sacrificial system. And what I mean by that is like, the sins of an entire nation for an entire year, like really like two goats, you can kill a goat and then confess the sins onto another goat and send it away and that's gonna make up for the sins of an entire nation for a year? And according to this system, yeah, like that covers it temporarily. It's kinda like you have a broken leg and you take ibuprofen. That ibuprofen deals with the pain but it doesn't actually get to the core and fix the issue, your leg's still broken. And these two goats kinda deal and cover this sin for the next year but it doesn't really get to the core of it. It's not quite satisfying to the issue and, and um, I heard it taught this way, like imagine you own a house and you had a contractor who was doing a bunch of work on your house and he screwed some things up and so he said, hey, I'm gonna come back tomorrow because I screwed some things up, and tomorrow I'm gonna gift you with just a free day of work. I'll show up, I'll, do, I'll fix whatever you need fixed, I'll build whatever you want built, just make a list, tomorrow I'll show up at the crack of dawn and I'll just get going in the entire day, you don't have to pay for anything, like you'd be pretty pumped. And you'd make a list of all the things that you want done or built or you want made new in your home. The next morning you'd wake up, you hear a knock at the door, but instead of this contractor that you were expecting to show up, you see seven-year-old me with his little tool set ready to get going on whatever. And you're like, no, like, this isn't gonna do. This substitute is not, like, I'm, I'm not trying to babysit you and guard all my trees from you all day. Like, this is not going to do. You would not be satisfied with that substitute. You would accept a different contractor, somebody else, but he would have to be as good as or better than the original contractor if you were going to accept him as a substitute. And that was the issue with the sacrificial system, basically. Like a heavy price was paid year after year after year, and it wasn't quite enough. Like it wasn't quite a good enough substitute to satisfy that debt and deal with all of that sin. Like taking ibuprofen for a broken leg. And you think, well, okay, so what if it was like a cooler or bigger animal other than a goat? Like have you seen a goat? Like what if it was like two bulls or two lions or two velociraptors what if we sacrificed them like you're like okay well still it's just an animal it's not quite satisfying to 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 deal with this sin once and for all and so here's what i want you to do right now i want you to imagine that you're you're a jew in the old testament world and you're beneath this sacrificial system where every year the day of atonement comes around and and that's that's what your hope is in for reconciling you to God and dealing with all the sin that stands between you and him, your hope is in these, these goats. Your hope is in, is in following all the, the prices that you need to pay that are listed out in the book of Leviticus and doing all of these, these different things to do away with this sin, like that's what you put your hope in. And then all of a the sudden, this crazy prophet guy 
by the name of Isaiah comes onto the scene and he starts saying just like a lot of crazy sounding things. But you know that something in you just knows that what he's saying is true just because of the authority that he speaks it with. And, and you go to one of Isaiah's sermons and he speaks this prophecy that we now know today as Isaiah chapter 53. You wouldn't know that yet in the Old Testament times, but you hear him say this. He says this, and I'm just gonna read the entire chapter. He says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty. They're talking about Jesus here. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that, he, that we would even desire him. And keep in mind, this is 700 years before Jesus would even be born. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we fled, we held him in low, in low esteem. Surely he took up the pain and bore our suffering Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And this, this sounds a lot like a sacrifice of a human being. And, and that's going through your mind because, because people all throughout history have brought up the idea of like, okay, well, what if we sacrificed a human being? Would that do it? And every time it was brought up to God, he said, no, absolutely not. But all of a sudden, this prophet Isaiah He's talking about a human being being sacrificed and he's pierced for our transgressions and you're like, that sounds very, very familiar to goat number one on the day of atonement who has his blood where his life is spilt as a sacrifice to make atonement for everything that we did wrong. This sounds so familiar. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Sounds so familiar. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You're like, that sounds familiar too. Like goat number two, the Lord has laid on him the sins and the iniquity, the wrongdoings of us all that the Lord has laid that on a human being. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. That sounds familiar, taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. Some translations say that God was pleased to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, we will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many much more than one nation he bore the sin of many and made intercession 
for the transgressors. And so 1,500 years after God put the sacrificial system into place and made a way for men, for humanity to not get what they deserved, the wages of their sin, which was death, but rather to get unmerited favor, which is grace, which is unity with him. And then 700 years after this crazy Isaiah prophet guy made all these prophets about a human being being sacrificed for one final atonement, one final sacrifice once and for all, God does the unthinkable. God does John 3.16. God sends his one and only son into the world, Jesus Christ into the world, the king of the universe, the creator of all with skin and bone on onto our planet and he lived a perfect life so that he could die at the perfect time. Lived a perfect and spotless life so that he could die at exactly the right moment, so that he could have the iniquities of us all, past, present, and future, placed onto his head in a single moment as he was crushed. so that he could be pierced for our transgression, so that he could be nailed to a cross and have a spear shoved beneath his rib cage through a lung and back out the other side, causing his blood where his life is to be spilt all over the cross. To make one final atonement to deal with sin once and for all in the most satisfying way. And that's why this was the only way that it could be done. That's why God pulled it off. And that's why when you raise your hand to accept Christ into your life, it actually works. Because you're saying, that sacrifice, I I want that sacrifice. I'll take what you did for me because I've been trying to do this on my own. I've been trying to atone for my own junk, whatever that is. I'm starting to realize that nothing I can do is going to work. No amount of self-help books that I read or no amount of white-knuckling to get the list of goals that I have done or the amount of New Year's resolutions I make or the amount of juice cleanses that I do. doesn't matter. I'm never going to get to this place that my soul just so desperately longs to be. I can't do it, so God, I'll take the sacrifice. Can it count for me? Can it pay for me? Can it do it for me just once and for all? Can this just be done with? that Jesus Christ truly lived a perfect life and died at the perfect moment as a perfect sacrifice to perfect some very imperfect people. And that's grace. God not giving us the wages of our sin and what we deserve, which is death, but rather taking it upon himself and giving us something entirely different, unmerited favor, heaven forever, eternity with him, starting right now and the blood-stained cross at the very center of our Christian faith is the proof of that his blood where his life was and that's why accepting Jesus actually works you're choosing to say God I'll take that sacrifice let it pay for me Once and for all, God, I want it. The writer of Hebrews in 9.14, he says this, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. Sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean, all right? It works. It's a, 
ibuprofen for a broken leg. It works temporarily until next year comes around and we're gonna have to do it again because what do we do as human beings? We continue just to sin. We continue to fall short, left on our own. But how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, offered himself perfect to God, cleanse our consciences inwardly. So not just outwardly cleaning us up, but inwardly with all the junk going on inside. I know my junk, you know yours. And he's saying, that's what I'm coming to do, not just to throw a Band-Aid on something that needs surgery. I'm here to do surgery. I'm here to wash you inwardly and get to the core of this. Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that he may serve the living God. And in that moment that he took his last breath on the cross, the sky turned black and the earth shook and the barrier that separated a holy God from unholy people was torn in two because sin once and for all was dealt with and God realized that he could now coexist with human beings. It's been atoned for once and for all. It's been dealt with. Listen to me, young adults. Jesus plus nothing is why we are saved. He doesn't want sacrifices from us anymore. The ultimate sacrifice happened 2,000 years ago on a cross on the other side of the world. That did it all. Jesus plus nothing is why we're saved, which means you no longer need to atone for or try to make up for the things that you do wrong even after you're saved. To try to punish yourself for all the ways that you screwed up last week or last night even. You punishing yourself for something that you did last night is nothing more than an insult to the blood that ran down Jesus' cross because that sin no longer exists. Jesus plus nothing is why we are saved, which means past, present, and future, all of our sins, we're justified in front of God forever because of Jesus, because of the cross, because it's been done away with. This is a satisfying sacrifice. To say it like Reed Bogart would say it, Jesus plus nothing means that every day for the rest of my life, I can live just as if I've never sinned before because of Jesus, because that sin no longer exists. It was done away with on the cross, theologically, scientifically, perfectly atoned for on the cross because of Jesus. Jesus plus nothing is why I'm free and Jesus plus nothing is why you are too right now. Our hope and our hope is in that. Our hope is not in anything else. It's not in our good behavior or our a bit like how many times we come to young adults. That's not where our hope is. Our hope is not in the amount of money that we give to homeless people or the, the cute little kid in Haiti that is our compassion kid that we sponsor. That's not where our hope for eternity is. Our hope is not in how many times we read the Bible or the amount of hours that we log praying every single week. That is not where our hope lies. Our hope lies with Jesus and Jesus alone. Without him, we have absolutely nothing, but with him, we have absolutely everything in Jesus Christ. And so if you want to know him tonight, I wanna to give you the chance to know him tonight. Like if there's one person in here who wants to know Jesus for the very first time and say, I'll take that sacrifice because I can't do it on my own anymore. Tonight, I wanna to give you the chance to do that. If you want heaven forever, but even more than that, if you want starting right now, the fullness of life that comes in the aftermath of the cross, 
that Jesus died on and shed his blood on 2,000 years ago, man, he can be yours. If you're here tonight and you feel him wooing you in any way and you just don't know what it is, you've never felt it before, it's God. He's wooing you. God is calling you. The creator of the universe is recruiting your heart tonight. That's why you're here. God does not do coincidence, I promise you. And raising your hand doesn't save you, but expressing something outwardly just solidifies what's going on internally. Jesus says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. It clicks on the inside, but then express it outwardly. And so if you want that sacrifice to count for you, to finally just do away with everything and live every day for the rest of your life just as if you've never done anything wrong and then have heaven forever. I just wanna invite you to just be super brave right now and raise your hand because I wanna pray for you. Who cares about anybody else in this room? This is you and God. This is the best decision that you will ever make. Be brave and respond to him calling you forward. In a second, I wanna pray for you, but right now I just, I just wanna say welcome to the party because that's what grace is. That's what this series is. Yeah. Thank you, God. And for, for you and me, if you, if you have known Jesus for a while, but you just need to be reminded that you're, you've been at the party and you're still at the party, and this grace thing counts for you every single day that your future sins are dealt with as well. I just wanna remind you of that right now, every day for the rest of your life, just as if you've never sinned. In a trillion years from now, you'll be in a world in perfect unity and union and shalom with God and everybody else and with yourself and where everything just works, everything just clicks. Puppies stay puppies forever. You can live next to the beach and the mountains at the same time and have them both. I'm just guessing. And you'll be in shape and tan for the rest of eternity. Just guessing on that too. If you need to be reminded of that tonight, man, that's what we celebrate. Because of that perfect savior who lived a perfect life and at the perfect moment died as a perfect sacrifice to to perfect some very imperfect people like you and me so that now we can coexist with a holy God for the rest of eternity. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for pulling off John 3.16. Thank you that human beings, humanity messed it up, but, and this is the understatement of the year, you went out of your way to fix it. And every single person who accepts that sacrifice in their life, God, that's a party that you throw. That right now in heaven, you're throwing a party. So God, we love you so much, and we just thank you Jesus, for the pain that you went through to perfect us. And God, the plan that you guys as the Trinity hashed out up there to save us. We love you. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ.